morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. Good morning, everybody. Uh, giving honor to God, uh, as in the old African-American church would say, who is the head of my life, um, to the shepherd of this house, uh, Dr. Allen, um, distinguished guests, colleagues, and friends, uh, good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, and thank you for removing the platforms. Um, as some have heard me say, uh, my mother did not birth me a tall man, but I'm glad she didn't birth me yesterday. So um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and hold them with you. But um, in, in, um, in honor of Black History Month, and um, as, I, as I alluded to um, some of my, my own tradition, I would like to do something that um, I saw old preachers do. Um, when they would come into a new space. And one of those things that they would do is sing a hymn. Um, and so in that same vein, I would like to do that today. It's one that we probably know. Um, it goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you have your, your Bibles with you, would you stand in, in the presence of the Lord and, uh, and read with me? Um, I'll begin from Mark chapter 9. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. I'll be reading down to uh, verse 41, and, and we'll We'll camp out there for a little while. It reads thus. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because one, on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child and had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but he who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. And we'll run down to verse 50 and we'll, we'll close there. It says, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. The text that I would, if you, if you would please be seated in the presence of the Lord. Um, with the time that we have available to us, uh, I'd like to tag this text be humble or be humbled. If you would, pray with me. Father God, uh, we thank you that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. You've given us life. You've given us health. And even on a cold winter morning, you've given us the opportunity to come and gather in your name. 
So God, we ask that this word would be a word that you promised and your word would not return to you void, that it would accomplish all that you please. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my strength and my redeemer in whom we trust. Let the people of God say. 2020, though many have attempted to wave goodbye to it in various ways, forget about it, ignore it, act as if it didn't exist, um, like the smell of something rancid inside an old refrigerator that you open up and try to open quickly when you realize what's inside, the smell still lingers. There are, however, some enjoyable moments that came from 2020. And those, those moments warrant our celebration. Being a Kansas City native, uh, one thing that comes to mind immediately is uh, the Kansas City Chiefs' victory in Super Bowl 54. Another one of being uh, the last dance. And for those of you that are unfamiliar, the last dance is a 10-part documentary chronicling Michael Jordan and the 1998 Chicago Bulls' sixth championship run. Um, to the previous generation or the current generation, it simply solidified an irrefutable truth that Michael Jeffrey Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. However, to a younger generation caught up in the propaganda that is LeBron James, uh, it forced them to recognize the reality of Jordan's status as the G-O-A-T, the GOAT, greatest of all time. While there was considerable discussion leading up to Super Bowl 55 last week about Tom Grady, the football goat, uh, taking on the kid, the baby goat, and Patrick Mahomes, it appears that that discussion may have been a bit premature. Kansas City's defeat on Sunday night was uh, humbling, if, if nothing else. At any rate, the conversation of who is the greatest, who is the greatest in all spaces, who's the best hot dog eater, who is the greatest doctor, who is the greatest basketball player, who is the greatest football player, who is the greatest author of all time. These conversations pervade every corner of culture and life and a reality not unlike the one encountered by Jesus in his time. Like a documentary all its own, the Gospel of Mark introduces us to this Jesus, the King of Kings and Servant of servants. Mark illustrates Jesus as a man on the move, healing, teaching, exhorting, and ultimately sacrificing, bringing us peace. We arrive at the text during uh, the second episode of what D.A. Carson calls a thrice-repeated sequence, embodying the central purpose of Mark at the point in his narrative. It goes something like this. Jesus predicts his death, number one. Second, the disciples misunderstood. Third, Jesus teaches about the cost of discipleship, a thrice-repeated sequence. Chapter 9 opens with Jesus taking Mo, Larry, and Curly, I mean Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain, and he's transfigured before them. Peter is like the friend who can't help but open his mouth and spill out whatever comes to mind when he experiences something amazing, when the best thing he can really do is just keep his mouth shut. But it's going no different. It's going one way on the mountain, but it's no different at the, bottom, at, the end of, at, the, at the bottom of the mountain. You see, there are nine other disciples that in that same time are failing to exercise an evil spirit from a boy, prompting the boy's father to question whether or not even if Jesus could do anything to help him. We often make fun of the disciples, but they often reveal the deeper issues of our own hearts. The lessons, however, that they received are not only meant to be formative, but humbling for them and for us. 
bringing us to this revelation. God's humility, godly humility is powerful. Godly humility is powerful. With the time I have remaining, what I would like for us to understand um, is how we might be equipped with the tools that are available to us in God's word to be a humble and hospitable people. And to that end, I I would like to offer you uh, three uh, understandings that are demonstrated by the humble. Three understandings demonstrated by the humble. One, the humble understand preeminence and power as paradoxical. We'll see that in verses 33 through 37. The humble understand preeminence and power is paradoxical. Number two, the humble understand proximity to God's power does not guarantee their ability to use it. Verses 38 through 41, again, the humble understand proximity to God does not guarantee their ability to use it. And number three, the humble understand the power of peace. So the humble the humble understand the preeminence and power as paradoxical. The humble understand proximity to God and power does not guarantee their ability to use it. And lastly, the humble understand the power of peace trickled in. We'll, we'll add some, some nuggets and questions that might x-ray our hearts as to where we, where we are with relation to that question of humility and power. So let's look at verse 33. They came to convert him. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Jesus engages the disciples about what they're arguing about. Obviously, they don't want to tell him. It's it's the same thing that they've they've been arguing about for a long time. Who among them is the greatest of all? Now, it's comical that they would have this same discussion considering their recent escapades as late. That we, that we just described. But their common failures and competition with one another reveal the enemy of humility, which is pride. Pride is an old sin. Unfortunately, the disciples, though, were products of their own time and culture. And we shouldn't be too quick to judge them because I think they still, those things still matter deeply to us today. In subtle ways and not so subtle ways. I'll give you an example. If anyone is ever flying Southwest, Southwest has your A1 through, 50, A1 through 15, then they've got their 15 through 30, and they've got their 30 through 16. And if you, add, if you watch what happens when they start to call people up to the gate, everybody is looking to try and get themselves to the front of the line. People hold their tickets in their hands so that they can see what their number is, but they don't necessarily want you to see what their number is because if they can get just a little bit closer to the front, they might not have to sit in a middle seat. And then once they get on the plane, they may do not so subtle things to discourage you from sitting in the middle seat next to them, like put their coat in the seat next to them, or put a hoodie on their head, or put a hat on, put their headphones on, look mean as you walk by, so people won't want to sit by you. Not so subtle ways of people wanting to have their needs met, to have their comforts addressed. But there are more subtle ways, not so subtle ways that I would say that we also may 
push ourselves to the head of the line. Have you ever found yourself uh, putting down the service of another Christian brother or sister in Christ in order to prop up yourself or to prop up your own ministry? Crabs in a bucket. Rather than building up one another, we tear one another down. On April 22, 2004, Specialist Pat Tillman of the 75th Ranger Regiment was killed in Afghanistan. Some of you may be familiar with Pat Tillman. He was an NFL football player um, who, in light of what happened on September September 11, 2001, uh, he enlisted in the Army. He enlisted in the Army with his brother, who was a minor league baseball player. And they they went to Ranger School, um, and they served, and they'd done one tour already, and they were on their second tour. And he died that night. But sadly, he didn't die from enemy fire. Pat Tillman was killed by friendly fire, fratricide, fratricide. When we allow pride in the pursuit of preeminence into our service, we find ourselves guilty of the same atrocity. Brothers and sisters, this should not be, but Jesus employs paradox to provide his disciples a counter to the narrative of their day and hours. Dr. Robert Smith Jr. explains it best. He says, a paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. I'll say that again. A paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. If you wanna, Jesus responds with statements like this. If you wanna be first, You need to be last and servant of all. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Children were not high on the social order status. They were some of the most vulnerable people because they were desperately dependent on someone else to provide everything that they needed. Christ's upside-down juxtaposition of children and significance compared to the world's view showed just how much God values the devalued. This, John Mark uses this whoever language, this whoever paradoxical language in 937. It shows up all over this threefold sequence. It shows up in Mark 38, 34 through 38. It shows up in in Mark 10, verses 42 through 45, when Jesus is showing us that if you want to be with him, that you better get in line. You better be prepared to serve. It's not about you being at the top. It's about you serving others. I like Matthew's account. I like Matthew's account of uh, Peter, James, and John, and the disciples, and um, the way that Matthew tells it, he, he says that uh, James and John had their mama <laughs> come, to, come to Jesus and ask them, ask Jesus for the best seats in the kingdom on their behalf. And the disciples are mad about it. Isn't that a low blow? You send your mama to your teacher? Don't do that. If if your grades are messed up, don't don't send your mama to your teacher. All right? Just don't do that. All right? But it it begs a question. Is, Is there a little scribe in you? Do you want everybody to know your name, to have the best seats? Do you want to be honored? By all. You know, only through humbly serving others 
for God's glory and his glory alone is one truly great in God's kingdom. Ambition and isol- ambition in isolation is not it's not evil. One can expect one can expect great things from God and should attempt great things for him. However, misplaced motivation is another matter. What or who motivates your life in service? What or who motivates your life in service? One way to interrogate this motivation is by looking at your calendar. Who do you spend your most time with? Do you spend your time primarily with people that can do something for you? Do you spend your time with people that will boost your platform, that will teach you something? What would it look like? How would it look if we were a people that took time and built relationship with people regardless of whether or not they could offer us anything at all? What if the relationships that we had, we built relationships, friendships with people that brought nothing to the table for us? Look at your calendar and pray and ask God, if you, as you look through your calendar, Lord, is there one, is there one person that I might spend intentional time with? Would you bring them to me so that they might invest in me? So our first point was uh, the humble understand preeminence and power is paradoxical. And second, the humble understand proximity to God's power does not guarantee the ability to use it. Looking at verses uh, 38 through 41. Verse 38 says, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. John comes to Jesus as a spokesperson of the 12. After they failed in their attempt to cast out an evil spirit, they tried to stop someone else from successfully doing so because, they, because that person wasn't following the disciples. The disciples. You know, this isn't the first time that we've seen something like this happen in Scripture. If you uh, look at the, the life of Joshua, son of Nun, I think he is a, uh, he's a great example for us. Um, in Numbers chapter 11, uh, verses 24 through 30, you'll see um, the, the, 70, the 70 elders um, receiving the Holy Spirit and prophesying. And two of them were not with the others that were in the camp. And those Eldad and Medad were, were prophesying as well. And Joshua sees what's going on. And he asks, he tells Moses, I want to restrain them. Let me stop them on your behalf. Moses, however, reorients his focus. And he says, I would that all would prophesy, that all would receive the Holy Spirit. His focus, Moses' focus was on God. And at that moment, Joshua's focus needed to be reoriented back to God as well. The second is uh, Joshua chapter 5. In chapter 5 of Joshua, verses 13 through 15, we see Joshua on the way to Jericho. And he encounters the angel of the Lord. And when he sees the angel of the Lord, the angel has a sword in his hand. And Joshua says, well, whose side are you on? Are you on Israel's side or are you on the side of the enemies? Angel of the Lord says, nope. I'm on the Lord's side. <laughs> Whose side are you on? 
Once again, Joshua's focus is reoriented, not to, to see a larger picture of, hey, this isn't about Moses. This is about God. Sometimes our perspectives need to be oriented as well. Though we all profess to serve the Lord, we need to be careful about presuming all of our perspectives to be correct. If this edifice in which we find ourselves stood in 1845, I can guarantee you I would not be standing before you today. Presumption, particularly when struggling with pride, is a dangerous thing. John and the rest of the disciples presumed that they should be the arbiters of who can work for God. Do we do that? Do we create gates for who can serve God? Extra scriptural gates for who is in the family? One of my uh, grandest experiences uh, serving in the military for many years was uh, um, having the opportunity to work with a general and service as aid. Um, now, serving as an aide to a general is a, uh, the way that I like to say it is, it's a lot like being around a CEO all the time. You ride with them, you eat the same food that they eat, you meet the same people that they meet, uh, you get to sit down and hear the conversations that they have. You get to hear them talk about strategy. You get to see them um, lead others. You get to see them correct others. You see all of this. Um, and then you also, in a way, function as an emissary for the, for the general. Before he comes, before he shows up on the ground, you go and you prepare the way. You make sure that things are in order, that people have done the right things that they need to do before he arrives. People, particularly that outrank you, they seek your guidance. They want your opinion on what you should do to make the best impression. Now, don't get it twisted. Just because you eat with the general, just because you ride with the general, just because you hear what the general has to say, because you walk beside them, doesn't make you the general. <laughs> You're not the general. <laughs> Pride presumes proximity to the power of God, grants unfettered permission to wield it as, he, as we please. It does not do that. Left unchecked, we will create our own standards of Litmus test four, and ultimately barriers to Christian fellowship. In other words, it makes you stuck up and inhospitable. The disciples needed to be reoriented with a focus only Christ could provide. As we look at verses 39 through 40, 41, uh, Jesus tells them, hey, don't stop them because no one can perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. It says, uh, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Jesus paints an open picture of what it means to represent him, to represent him. More open than the one that was created by his disciples. See, you know, we have this tendency to, uh, to, uh, to tell people, uh, I, I know I, I do it in my own house. I have five kids. Um, when, you, when you tell a kid, hey, don't touch that. Hey, don't do that. Hey, don't do that. Hey, what kind of clothes are you wearing on? What kind of, kind of outfit is that this morning? You need to change that. Hey, 
Don't do that. Don't do that. Stop, 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 stop. And, and we miss the opportunity. <laughs> we miss the opportunity to tell the kids what, what they're doing well. Do we do that? Jesus says something really uh, profound. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. You know, oftentimes we'll hear people say, if you're not for me, you're against me. Jesus gives it the other way around. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. You know, a time is coming and is now here when the world will stand opposed to God and his people. And we could use all the friends we could get. <laughs> there are a great many denominations. There are, there, may, there are legitimate differences, however, amongst Christians. And some of them cannot be reconciled. But we need to remember who is the real enemy. The enemy is not one of flesh and blood, but it is one of principalities. It is one of powers. Rulers of the dark world. Those are our enemies, not our brothers and sisters. Jesus affirms the significance also of every act that is done for Christ, even the smallest acts, like providing a cup of water to a person in an arid land. It matters to God. So how might we be a hospitable people? One way we might consider being a hospitable people is uh, as we look at our churches. We, uh, you know, there were years ago, there was, a, there was a, this expression called the worship wars. And the worship wars was about what kind of worship is appropriate. What, is it only hymns that are appropriate? Is it only spirituals that are appropriate? Is it, uh, are guitars okay in the, in the pulpit? Is it worship teams? Is it uh, choirs? What's acceptable? And we had long, drawn-out arguments over what was acceptable and what was not. Are we so beholden to what we prefer that we're not willing to consider other people more important than ourselves, that our preferences for what we would like to see are more important than others? Are we willing... Are we willing to make changes to make other people more comfortable? We might ask this other question in line of in walking towards determining whether or not we're hospitable people. We would ask, is there a little Pharisee in you? Do we tell people in order for them to be in the faith how they need to look, dress, how they need to view the eschaton? how they need to view political policy. And that is the determining factor of whether or not they're in the faith. If so, we may be guilty of placing a yoke on the neck of brothers and sisters even we have been unable to bear. Lastly, take a real inventory of your own prayer life. Do you have consistent rhythms of prayer? The disciples were unable to cast out the spirit because they didn't pray. <laughs> Are there things still holding on to you, be it bad habits, secret sins, a bad relationship, etc., because you won't take it to the Lord in prayer? Take inventory of our prayer life. Is there a little Pharisee in you being willing to sacrifice our sacred cows of preference? So we see... Uh, 
our, our understanding, coming back to them again, the humble understand preeminence and power is paradoxical. The humble understand proximity to God's power uh, does not guarantee the ability to use it. And lastly, uh, the humble understand the power of peace. If you would look with me quickly at uh, verse 50, it says this, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus closes his lesson via inclusio by calling his disciples back to his initial question. He calls them to peace. He opens the conversation with asking them what they are arguing about and in the end calls them to peace. Rather than seeking positions like the rest of the world, he calls them to humbly seek to serve. Salt. Salt preserves. Salt seasons. Salt was used in sacrifices. All of these purposes should be exemplified by the humble servant of the Lord. The humble servant of the Lord should preserve by making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The humble servant should season by letting their speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And the humble should be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is their reasonable service. One word on peace. Sometimes we confuse peace as the absence of conflict. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Rather, it is the unwavering commitment to dependence on Christ in every conflict. I'm going to say that again. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Rather, it is the unwavering commitment to dependence on Christ in every conflict. So how does peace look? Peace looks like uh, an, an old-fashioned view of airing your grievances. You see, sometimes we have a passive-aggressive uh, uh, realization of how we handle things that we don't like. We'll go to social media to talk about something that somebody said to us that we don't like, and we'll say, we'll post a picture and say, how I look when somebody tells me I don't like. <clears throat> but we don't have the guts to go to the person directly and address them. We need to have an old-fashioned view, Matthew, Matthew 18 view, of how we address issues among the people of God. We need, air, we need to air our grievances person to person. Social media doesn't need to be used as the vehicle to blast those with whom we have no relationship, especially if they're of the household of faith. A second way of, uh, of addressing how does peace look, uh, we look at uh, John, chapter, John chapter 21 and uh, you, know, you, you hear the restoration of Peter, but then you also have this, this conversation of, of Peter asking, well, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus says, you follow me. Don't worry about what's going to happen to John. What if I say that he stays? Don't worry about what's going to happen to him. You know, I think uh, uh, the great uh, theo theologian and philosopher Andaminio has, uh, has a great way of, of saying this. It says, he says this, don't let your food get cold looking at somebody else's plate. <laughs> don't let your food get cold looking at somebody else's plate. You have work to do. 
Be serious about the work that's put in front of you. So we started on our journey with, a, with, a, with an idea that godly humility was powerful, um, with the hope that we would um, go on and see the tools that were available to us within the text to become a more humble and hospitable people. We saw that there were three understandings of uh, demonstrated by the humble, that the humble understand preeminence um, and power is paradoxical, that the humble understand proximity to God's power does not guarantee the ability to use it. And we saw that the humble understand the power of peace. However, there is one aspect of paradox I've yet to mention. A series of seeming contradictions at their intersection pointing us to truth. There is one who existed in the form of God, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. There is one who is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. He is the just one and the justifier of sinners. There is one who is a son of David and the Lord of David. He is... Though he fashioned the world and man in his hands, he was handed over to an unjust, sinful authority. He is the prince of peace and the victor over death, hell, sin, and a grave. This is Jesus, y'all. Jesus, the eternal son of God. Jesus, Mary's baby that came through 40 and two generations. Jesus, the lover of my soul. Jesus, tempted in every way, but without sin. Jesus, your substitute. Jesus, the goat of goats. There is nothing more significant than a life lived in humble service to him. There is no better year than this one to live life in humble service to him. Humility is powerful. One day, every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess that Jesus, a humble servant, is Lord of all. His invitation to us is different than any that the world may offer. Momentary afflictions for a later glory. Though it rails against a culture of self-worship and instant gratification, it is better. He is better. Jesus is better. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, we've heard your word. Don't let us walk into these, these doors and walk out the same way we left. Lord, we thank you. We know that we have work to do. Lord, help us to be a humble and hospitable people, loving you with all of our heart, our soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.